Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Bronson Hill. Bronson started investing in single-family homes uh, 10 plus years ago and has since transitioned to apartment buildings. His company currently controls over 1,400 units and over $100 million worth of real estate. So thank you so much for being on. Awesome, Charles. Really excited to be with you and your listeners. Love talking about real estate and just uh, learning more. So it's uh, exciting. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Let's uh, learn a little bit more about yourself and uh, kind of how you got into real estate, both uh, personally and professionally before you start investing. Yeah. So um, I've done a number of different things, my background in nonprofit, as well as in sales in the medical field. And I've been uh, doing single family. I've been doing single family for about 10 or 15 years. And as I look back, I realized, you know, that single family house that I had that I'd lived in, and then I moved to another state held onto and became an out-of-state landlord actually performed really well for me. It nice. wasn't a ton of work and it was actually a pretty good investment. So I thought, oh, this is great. I should do more of these. So I ended up <laughs> buying single family houses in Cleveland with my dad. And you know, the numbers looked phenomenal when as we looked into it. And then we did it and it, it was good. It turned out really well. We made some good investments, but it was really a lot of work. I mean, for the amount of uh, work that I was putting in, um, and I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't really account for, especially with single family, is that we don't value our time or we undervalue our time when looking at uh, single family investing. And so I had a, uh, my, a grand plan, Charles, to basically get 30 houses and retire from my, my J-O-B with passive income. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to retire. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be doing whatever I want to do. And then I had this cousin that I hadn't seen in years who was a multifamily guy who's you know, really successful, been doing it for years and years. And he said, you know, like I told him my plan and he said, you know, that sounds like a lot of work. He said, why don't you do <laughs> multifamily? And I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't have the money. And he said, well, you can raise the money. So he gave me some tips, kind of, mm. you know, introduced me to some different people and some conferences and podcasts and different things like this. And I was able to just basically learn how you do multifamily. And so over the, over the last four years, I've actually raised almost $20 million for wow. a multifamily real estate. Uh, I had individual phone calls with over 1200 uh, passive investors, high net worth individuals interested in investing. And so, uh, so it's been quite a journey. And uh, yeah, I was doing this consulting job, you know, about 20, 30 hours a week. And I just recently kind of wrapped that up so I could fully focus on doing what I love, which is really multifamily investing, as well as helping educate people about wealth. So yeah. nice, nice. So what were some of the obstacles you, uh, you mentioned that there was a lot of time that was involved with the single family? What were some of the uh, specific obstacles that you faced as a single family home investor? Yeah. So with the single family homes, I mean, a lot of people really think, you know, oh, that's how I become financially free as I invest in real estate and everybody thinks single family real estate, but it really does not lead to financial freedom because uh, even though houses tend to appreciate, and I had this first house, I had it for years and years, um, you know, actually about 15 years before I ended up selling it just earlier this year. But, um, you know, basically the cash flow really wasn't that great. Maybe I was making a hundred to $300 per house and, you know, things kind of, you know, went up over time, but it, it's kind of this very slow drawn out type of investing that it just doesn't really add up to, it didn't really add up to what I wanted it to. And then when I really counted the, the amount of time that it took, and again, being somebody who was 
a high paid professional making, you know, high into the six figures. It's like, you know, your time is really valuable. So every time your property manager calls you or sends you pictures that, Hey, this tenant did this, or what do we do here? What happens here? And, and sometimes it wasn't bad, but sometimes it was, sometimes there was like, there was a lot of information, a lot of things they needed. There's things that I needed to do, whether it was with insurance or with just different information, as far as, you know, a little research on what I wanted to do, because they weren't the property managers. Typically they really don't make, they make some management decisions, but they really look to you for guidance. And so, yeah. um, so I think in general, um, you know, there are people that do it and it takes, it can take a very long time to actually become financially free, but what really, you know, again, kind of helped me was to see beyond that and realize that, you know, for me to quit my great corporate job where, you know, in a way there you have the golden handcuffs, right. Cause you get paid mm -hmm. so well that it's just hard to leave, but to be able to do that, to go manage 30 houses out of state, um, how you kind of realize that would be a lot of work and it wouldn't be just as, as turnkey and as easy as I'd like. <laughs> so people use this term turnkey and like, nothing's really turnkey. I think we've yeah. talked, you know, nothing truly is passive, right? Charles, yeah, true. you have to be involved. And, and I find single family, uh, you know, primarily you really have to be involved on a very uh, detailed level. A lot of times versus multifamily, you have people that do that for you, people that really yeah. manage the assets and things. So I started to kind of see that and realize, yeah, I just, I don't want to do any more single family. I want to get pretty much all into multifamily. Yeah. I think I know one person out of all my years of networking and investing that's made a substantial amount of money in single family rentals and they had full-time employment on their end uh, to manage it, but it's very difficult. And especially geographic works against you as well. You know what I mean? So it's one thing you're like, oh yeah, great. I'll just buy all these houses on these streets. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, but what happens when there's one that's a great deal, it's uh, 30 minutes away. And this yeah. one there, and then now you've got someone that's just driving back and forth all day long. Whereas if you can kind of geographically center it, but definitely multifamily is a much easier and scalable uh, business model, I think. And uh, it's much easier to manage as well, because like you said, the insurance, because I always laugh when you're saying that, because uh, I find out with my smaller rentals that it's, you know, insurance policy changes every year or something like this changes, or you're looking for something. And um, if you only have three units, that's under the policy. I mean, it's not the best use of your time. But um, if you start getting 20, 25 units or 50 or 100, whatever, um, I mean, now it's not really a hassle because you have so many units uh, that are bringing in cash flow. Yeah, I really see it as a much, um, you know, much safer being in larger types of assets. I mean, mm -hmm, in, yeah. you know, in, in the 2009, the worst point of the Great Recession, uh, 4%, a little over 4% of single family houses nationally were in delinquency, which means they were 60 days behind on their payments or more. Um, and in the same time, large multifamily, meaning 60 units or more, uh, it was instead of 4% delinquency, it was 0.4%. So instead mm -hmm. of 20, one out of 20, every 25 houses, it was one out of every 250 apartments. And so just a much more stable asset. Uh, and, it, and it is more efficient on the management as well, because yeah. you know, let's say you have 10 houses and you got one maintenance guy who's going from place to place and they're paying so much, you're paying them so much per hour and they go to one house and they go to Home Depot and then they come back. It takes like half a day or a day just yeah. to kind of do one little thing versus you have a full-time person who's at one building. There's a lot of similar type of products right. you can kind of mix and match and they're full-time. So you get a discounted rate on them. And so there's just so many efficiencies that come to multifamily that we just don't think about. And I think that's the challenge when newer investors look at turnkey or single family, they think, oh, the numbers look amazing. Well, the numbers usually never turn out the way you want. <laughs> yeah. And usually they're way lower. And if you talk to a broker, they'll, they'll make the returns sound way better than they really yeah. are. And of course they don't account for your time. So. Yeah. yeah. And then at smaller properties too, they miss so many expenses. Um, 
Whereas when you get into larger and they're uh, larger and you get into commercial properties, not that every expense is always there, you've got to normalize those, but uh, it's something that you're like, there's so many things here that are missing and someone's telling me what they're going to make. And I'm like, you're hopefully, but I mean, like, what, who's, what's this and what's that? And what happens if this person leaves? And that's always usually the killer is, yeah. Uh, yeah, when someone leaves and you're like, now you've, you know, that goes your whole year of profit. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's like, you're working just to pay some equity to the bank. So that's a, that's a tough, tough investment strategy. So tell us right now, like what your, what your firm's current strategy and investment criteria is. Yeah. So we, like you mentioned, we have over a hundred million in real estate assets and uh, you know, all in multifamily we're, we're in the South, we're in the Sun Belt, mm-hmm. which uh, basically Texas to Florida. Um, I live in California. I don't own anything in California. All my <laughs> stuff is outside of California. <laughs> And uh, I think for reasons, I mean, there's so many reasons for that. There's, you know, we invest in the South because, uh, you know, political reasons, you know, businesses are open, uh, things, you know, you have more landlord rights versus not being able to evict tenants. Uh, there's a lot of migration happening. And I think it will happen in times of, of where things are going well in the economy and times of recession. So when things are not doing well, like in 2009, a lot of people moved, a lot of companies moved to Texas, right? Or Florida, because there were, you know, opportunities to pay, you know, the more attractive, you know, more like smaller salaries, but people could still live well in a lot of these other markets. And then also because of the weather, a lot of older people want to go retire there and it's cheaper to live. So if you live in Chicago or New York, you can go live in Florida or Texas or somewhere else and, and live really well. So I think that's only going to continue in those areas. And so, um, so we, yeah, we're, we're really strong kind of, you know, all in the South and we're just, you know, seeing the benefit of places like Jacksonville and Dallas mm-hmm. and Atlanta and some of these markets that are, are really doing well. So, uh, but yeah, primarily we're focused on, we work with high net worth individuals to uh, do passive investing. Um, we like a value add approach where we come in and we can see pretty clearly that, you know, rents for a particular property we're looking at are below market. So we can come in and do some renovations, you know, usually put eight to $10,000 in per unit, uh, maybe raise the rents 150 to $200 when they vacate. And the goal really is, you know, typically a three to five year hold and uh, to increase the value substantially of that property and giving investors a great return while improving the uh, neighborhood. So excited. Eight, eight to $10,000 per unit. That's uh, those are pretty heavy lifts. Is that usually your business model going into these properties? Not the light lifts, but uh, more of a heavy lift? Well, it really varies. I mean, you can yeah. come in and you can paint and you can do stuff really basic for, for cheap, but I mean, you come in and you know, you're doing flooring, you're doing, sometimes you're doing some work in the kitchen, maybe you're mm-hmm. putting new countertops on, you're doing some work in the bathroom, new bathroom tops. And I mean, you come in and, and basically uh, one example now is we have in Jacksonville, there's 138 units. We're working on a deal there. And, um, you know, it's about eight to $10,000 per unit, but, um, you know, uh, people wonder, well, this place is 99% occupied. How do you get the turnover? Well, you know, a lot of these units just kind of turn over on their own. So when mm-hmm. they come up for, for lease, you say, okay, well, rents everywhere are going up. So it's a hundred dollars more per month if you want to stay, but if you don't want to stay, uh, that's fine. Just let us know. And so about half the people end up staying, half people leave. So if they stay, they end up paying the hundred dollar increase if they, if they leave, mm-hmm then we can basically come in and do those renovations and then we'll see more like a $200, you know, rent yeah. increase by doing the work. So, so it kind of, it works out and we see, you know, again, it just adds so much to the value. I mean, if you raise rents uh, per unit, if you're able to raise them a couple hundred dollars a month, I mean, that can raise, you know, $3 million or more for the, the whole property. So it's just amazing how that, you know, yeah. directly correlates to your returns, which is amazing. Yeah. Cutting expenses is great, but pushing income is much more, it's much more of a model of a, of a, 
of a value increasing model. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. it's just kind of what I found with it too is, yeah, we can save a couple of dollars here and a couple of dollars there and hopefully everything works as well. But when you start increasing rents and if you have people that are paying rent increases or you're going to be renovating, I mean, you guys can't really lose uh, when you're working on those units because maybe not month one, uh, maybe month 13 now they, they leave after the next renewal and now you're going to renovate at that point and now you're still going to, probably won't even be another hundred dollars. You probably did 125 or something. So yeah, then there's really two things. You know, one is like we try to buy in areas where we see a potential for market appreciation, mm -hmm. which just has to do with the market generally rents are rising. So an area like Jacksonville is one of the fastest in the country, just rents in general are rising. So that's one thing. But the, you don't really have control necessarily except for the area you buy in. But uh, you know, that could you know continue to grow at a, at a huge rate, it could slow down, it could whatever. But but the idea of forced appreciation is something you really mm -hmm. do have control over. That in general, you can see the rents either in your own building or in buildings nearby. That, oh, we can see these rent bumps are, are there. And so yeah. that's just something that gives you a little more control, which we find is really awesome. So you mentioned earlier on that you uh, your firm has raised over $20 million from passive investors. Is that what your role is at the firm, or uh, what is your role? What do you what do you really focus on day to day? Yeah. So we found, you know, I've been doing this for a number of years now. And, and what I've really found is that there's really two types of main roles within groups. So typically you'll have uh, more of an operating type mm -hmm. of role, you know, somebody or, or some group finds assets and they'll basically help to get them under contract and then they'll manage them and they'll try to have really good performance. And it's very, very, very important. And then there's, uh, there's other individuals that are really good at working with investors and helping to raise money and just are more kind of a people person and enjoy doing mm -hmm. that. So I'm, I'm more of the latter. So I, I do like working with uh, individuals. So again, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, wealthy individuals. My background is working with a lot of physicians, which are, physicians are not always the, the <laughs> best investors. Sometimes they're the yeah. worst investors. There's reasons for that. Um, but, you know, really just, you know, trying to understand what people are looking for and helping them get there. So to me, you know, kind of my role is I, uh, you know, I, I look at a lot of different deals. I'm not actually, the deals that we do, we're typically not the operator, at least at this point, we typically partner with groups mm -hmm. that have established operating groups that really, you know, they're great at operations, looking at their, their performance, you know, a couple of groups I think of, you know, the 20 to 35% returns per year, even though they projected in the 15s. Uh, which is amazing. Yeah. So the under promise and over deliver a similar values that we have as far as being transparent with investors and things like that. And just really looking at, you know, uh, conservative, you know, writing or writing conservatively, but so, so, you know, when I previously worked with a group, I worked with a pretty large syndication group and I was a partner, we all worked together and uh, it really limited the, the, the deal flow sometimes because, mm -hmm. you know, for the group, we'd only have a deal, you know, once every, typically every five to 10 months, because we're just very selective yeah. on what we did. And so now I get presented deals a lot from different groups that I, you know, and, and I pass on almost all of them, but, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll have some that come around. And actually in the last six months, we've had three deals that we've done, which is amazing. Mm. So to, just the ability to have more deal flow. And then, I, you know, I passively invest. I'm involved on in every level where I'm going to a property. I'm looking at competing properties. I'm part of the diligence team. I'm part of the asset management team, though I'm not the primary asset manager. I basically just am not the one that found the deal, but I'm working with yeah. investors before and after the deal closes. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great because uh, the sourcing of deals is what I found is that um, it's a full-time job. I mean, especially when we're dealing with these larger assets, 100 plus units in the multifamily space. And um, it's very, very competitive. And you really need to have someone that's spending literally a full-time job of building relationships with those brokers. And then also... Finally, when they send you a deal that uh, it gets underwritten and it gets done very quickly. 
And uh, that's something too shows professional, but you can't just be finding deals. You've got to have, there's going to be like one group or one person that just relationships and, uh, and underwriting. And I mean, it's very difficult to be doing all of them, uh, all the different parts of it. But um, how are you vetting some of the sponsors that you work with and the operators? Because uh, that's something too, we always like getting new deal flow and working with other operators allows us to keep consistent deal flow going out to our investors. But how do you guys do it? Yeah, it, it is really, really important. I mean, they say, and you know, this came up earlier in our conversation too, that there's really no such thing as a passive investment, right? Really like this big buzzwords, oh, pass, hashtag passive investing and, you know, like all this stuff and mailbox money and, and uh, you know, and, and I love, I love passive investing. My, my podcast is called Mailbox Money. So it's, I love the idea, <laughs> but to truly be diligent, you, you know, to be a passive investor, you have to do your work on the front end. So it's more mm -hmm. front end work and then it becomes passive. So you're right. truly vetting the deal and you're vetting the sponsoring group. So those two things are really important. I think some things that we do, uh, we do have a checklist. We go through we have a whole bunch of things. We just look at really who is this group? What's their reputation? As you know, it's a pretty small industry. So if you ask around who knows who and what's the reputation there. And, and I get, you know, sometimes people now have been you know, out of the woodworks and, Hey, can you come work with us? Can you work with us? And a lot of times if I don't know them, I don't really work with them. I'll say, let's establish a relationship, but I, I just, I don't know them. So I want to get to know them. I, I do a background check on every partner that's involved in a deal. Um, basically I look at the numbers. I try to see really, are they conservative? Cause my approach is I'd much rather under promise. I'd rather say, oh, this is a 15% return and then be able to perform at 17% than to say it's a 22% return and be able to perform at a yeah. 17 or 18%. So I, you know, it's, again, it's just an approach that we have. So there's some values that we really try to live by and try to say, is this really a good fit? Does this group seem like potentially this could be a good long-term partner? Cause I don't want to do just a bunch of one-off deals with different partners. Yeah. However, you don't really know somebody until you do a deal with them, whether right. you're a passive investor uh, in looking at an operator working, you know, in a deal or you're, or even in, as a partner, an operating or, or a capital partner in a deal. So you do get to know people pretty well. And there's partner groups that I've worked with that I thought, you know, I would work with these guys again. And there's other groups I'd be like, you know what, I, I wouldn't work with these guys again. So, yeah. but again, it's just, it's one of those things, I think, whether you're an investor or you're a, a, you know, a sponsor like myself, you're just really trying to say, you know, do the values line up? Is this somebody who has uh, really a long-term approach? Are they conservative? Are they transparent? Uh, are they, do they, you really feel like you're getting you know, what you see is what you get. I, I really prefer groups mm -hmm. that kind of under sell their, you know, they just, they don't really try to put a lot of flash or really sell it. And they just kind of, what it is. And, uh, and then reputation. So those are a few things that we look for. What you do, you know, obviously we get on the list and try to look at each, you know, individual item and performance and things like that as well. Track record. Yeah. Passively investing in operator deals is something I found as well prior to bringing them to your group, because then I can see the communication on there and I can see what factors they're really in, like how transparent it is because if they're transparent with passive investors. I'm thinking it's going to be even more transparent with partners for sure. So it's something that um, I want to see, uh, you know, how rent collections are going on a new product. I mean, you know, and then if you had any kind of passive holdings during COVID, I mean, that's, you know, you're getting emails every week on deals compared to every quarter, or every month, you know what I mean? Because people are like, what's going on or what's happening. And um, it's so I think the communication is one of the biggest things that I think a lot of operators and sponsors and GPs, they kind of fail on a lot of, uh, especially with new investors that are new to this as passive investors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, communication really, yeah, that's a huge one. I'm glad you brought that up because 
you know, people, the worst thing is you invest in a deal and all of a sudden there's just crickets on the other end, or if you reach out and it just, somebody doesn't get back. I mean, it can be a really frustrating experience as an investor, even if the deal performs fine, it's just the ability to kind of have a person that you can connect with. And that's, what's different about syndication and multifamily syndication than crowdfunding or other sorts of, you know, REITs or other things, right. Is that you can, mm-hmm. you can be in with hundreds or thousands of investors and their focus is more on raising the money versus ours. I mean, we really, our group really try to say, and I know this is probably your approach as well. It's much more relational, right? It's you want everybody to have a great experience. It's like when you go to your favorite restaurant or you go to Starbucks or wherever, you know, you're going to have a certain type of experience. You know, the, the, the coffee or the food is going to be a certain way, you know, that the attitude of the people working there. And that's the whole thing that we try to look at is, well, what is the experience of investing in Bronson yeah. equity or what's the experience investing in your group? And, and that's because it's really, really important. So with you spending a lot of time raising money, and uh, as you're saying, commercial real estate is a relationship business, uh, you run a meetup, you have a podcast you mentioned, um, how has this kind of helped with building your business and building uh, your brand with other operators for deal flow, and then also with passive investors for, um, for funding those deals? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to grow your wealth. I really think there's two things that you can do. And one of them is education. So mm-hmm. reading books or, or, you know, learning information or whether it's podcasts or YouTube videos, all this stuff's really important. And the second one is uh, networking. And I think mm-hmm. that if somebody's trying to raise money, if somebody's trying to learn about deals as a passive investor, going to live events, meetups, conferences. I mean, I've had to go mostly, well, mostly out of the state because it's California and we are LA has <laughs> been so shut down, but um, yeah, so I've, I've been to Texas, I think six times this year for different conferences. I'm going two or three more this year. So, you know, it's one of those things that you, you just have to be willing to meet different people and ask questions and learn and, and find out, Hey, who do you, who've you invested with? What you, what's your best deal? What's your worst deal? And just, you know, the more you talk to people, the more you're going to learn about what's really going on in the market, you know, what, how investors are actually doing. I really think if somebody's a passive investor or aspires to passive investing, you have to go to meetups and you have to go to live mm. conferences because you'll meet other investors. Sometimes you'll meet full-time investors that all they do is invest passively oh, yeah. and they'll have all kinds of experience of here's what, here's how I lost money. Here's how I made a ton. Here's, here's a guy at avoid. Here's the ones I, I invest with all the time. So some of that information can be really, really, really valuable for people. Yeah. yeah because you'll talk to people that are passive investors and what's the next question. How's that going? You know what I mean? I invested yeah. with XYZ group. How's that going? Uh, I heard this happening. Is that true? Are you worried about that? And, and it's, it's funny because now there's not like you're, we're like here being recorded, but it's something that, you know, the truth comes out and people are very open when you're meeting them face to face. And, uh, you know, you're, you're truly interested in their experience with, uh, whatever that group is. Um, I had a question here about what I usually ask is what are common mistakes you see real estate investors make? But I also kind of want to combine that in with um, some of the reasons that you turn down deals uh, from operators or turn down operators in general, um, let, other than just not knowing them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, some of, yeah, you mentioned if I don't know them, that's one thing. One time, you know, the SEC is very particular on if you're raising money for deals that you're not paid just for raising money mm-hmm. for deals. So when I said, hey, I'm involved on every level, I am involved in every level. And so I had one time an operator send me a thing of, hey, we're going to pay you this much if you can raise this much. And it was like all percentage. It was like in an email. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, wow. like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a big no-no. So there's things that like, just from a <laughs> compliance standpoint, and you know, I was able to connect with this guy later and just say, hey, you know, it's probably good that, you know, you don't send out emails like that for various reasons, you know, because you don't want to be on the radar for the SEC because I know that, that's important to them. It's just that we're not, 
you know, we have all this money here and we're putting it into deals, different places, unless you're actually a licensed broker dealer, which mm. people do. But to me, that makes people a little more of a financial person that invests or, you know, gets people into real estate versus a real estate person that's mm -hmm. going to properties and doing all this. And in the past, I was an investment advisor for several years. So I sold some alternative asset stuff, stocks, bonds, all that stuff. So I, I, I would rather, much, much rather be a non-licensed person because it gives you some flexibility to create educational stuff and do other things. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that that's one reason. I mean, you know, reputation, sometimes the deal itself, I'll look at the deal and I'll, I'll look at the underwriting that, you know, if it's, really high returns, you know, sometimes I, I try to think from my investor standpoint, like, is it, is it, does the deal look you know, too good? Is there something here mm -hmm. that I'm missing? Are they counting on 5% rent growth in Dallas yeah. because it's always grown 5% the last 10 years and say, well, no, maybe conservative is more like two to 3%. So really kind of knocking those, those numbers down. So I think it just comes down to those real values decisions that for us, I mean, we have three real core values is one is conservative underwriting, Second is transparent communication. The third is really a partnership approach with investors. And so if, it, if something doesn't fit with one of those, or there's some character issues that come up, or there's just something that I see that doesn't make sense, and that's whether somebody's a passive investor or they want to be an operator, it's just you have to look at a lot of deals. You got to analyze the deal. You got to mm -hmm. see the, the wording. You got to look at the, the assumptions as far as the rent growth. Another one is the exit cap rate. If they're being oh, yeah. aggressive on those numbers, <laughs> um, you just have to kind of wonder about other things. So, so I think those are really important. The track record to me is also one other thing I wanted to mention that, you know, some people have no experience where they have one or two deals or very little experience. Some people have you know, 20 plus years of experience. And they've usually the groups that have 20 plus years of experience. They have all the money that they'll need. Yeah. But it doesn't mean as an investor, you want to invest with them because typically the returns are lower because they can't mm. find uh, value add. They can't find certain types of things. So it's really that sweet spot of people that typically have five to 10 years of, of experience. They've had multiple deals with some exits. Just so you can kind of see how they operate and see some track record. Uh, to me, that's really important. Yeah. Do you ever kind of look at uh, past returns or track, or track records? And if it's a real hot market, let's say Dallas, Atlanta, uh, Tampa, Jacksonville, and uh, kind of peel away what crazy growth we've had and kind of see uh, where the real, is there an, a real operator under this or do they just really buy in good areas, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's <laughs> really, um, that, that's a great point. You know, sometimes you, if you're just in the right area, you just pick the right areas, you're going to do just fine. That's again, why we typically pick areas where we see population yeah. growth, job growth, income, income growth, all that stuff. So, so it's better to be, you know, lucky than good sometimes for some operators <laughs> and just that you get in the right place. But no, I mean, I think you want to look at all that. I think that's all stuff mm -hmm. that you want to see. You just want to see that the person you're talking with has enough experience that if something starts going, you know, not as well. How do they, you know, propose, propose to change that? Or also who is the property manager they're going to work with and have they worked with that property manager in that market and what's the performance been? And, you know, just, those are all things that, because that, that typically is, is one of the biggest indicators of a particular property, how it performs is really having good man, property management in that particular market. Mm, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Property management. That's a, that's a great point because they are actually the people that are uh, talking to our clients, right? Our tenants. And I think that's another overlooked thing. That's great that you brought that up. Awesome. Um, so you've added like 600 plus units to your, uh, to your portfolio this year. What do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just continuing to, to, to network, continuing to find mm -hmm. the right deals. Um, you know, I, mean, I guess, you know, you put in the work and you'll, you'll, you'll find the right uh, opportunities. So I think it's, you know, the more kind of my brand or network has grown, the more it's led to just people saying, Hey, I've, I'm interested in this, or would you want to become be a part of this? And again, I'm very selective on the deals that I do on the people I work with. I don't want to be, I want to also have some sort of 
exclusivity where it's not like I'm one of 10 people raising money for a deal, you know, that's like yeah. everywhere, you know, it's all over. And we've done some of the 506C accredited only ones. We've done some that are 506B, which are only you know, for sophisticated or, or accredited with a relationship. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think just really, um, you know, continuing to just do the work, continue to look at the deals, continuing to really consider, you know, who I'm working with and, and also the experience of investors, the process that we have continuing to get better with those things. And we have a lot of repeat investors that mm-hmm. invest in every deal we do, or they, you know, invest as much as they can. So, or they tell friends and family. So I think, you know, that's definitely a good sign for us and things that we like to continue. We want to continue to see. So. Yeah, that's great. I, I've seen before uh, I get messages from people and they've told me, uh, I want to invest with someone like a 506C person they've never met or anything. I'm like, go to some events, you'll meet some people, talk to some people, build a personal relationship with them, get on all these deal flow lists, review stuff, and that's how you're going to do it. And that's perfect and required if you're 506B, but it's also, a, I think it's a great strategy for 506C. I'm not just going to wire someone money that I've never met. You know what I mean? I want to have some sort of rapport with them and I kind of see how they talk and how it deals and kind of see, uh, you know, you see their whole experience. It's much different than uh, when you're just watching YouTube or getting information from other people. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it is, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, I did a, a YouTube channel and we talked, one of the videos is how can I invest with someone I've never met or, you know, in another state or something, you know, how, like how can I invest in property this out of area? And I think it's just amazing now with, you know, podcasts and, mm-hmm. and YouTube and Google and bigger pockets and all these different, you know, you can, you can have a property, you can basically do a Google street yeah. you know, tour, walking tour, even though you're not there, you're across the country and you can, you know, you can do background checks on people. There's all things, kind of things you can do, or, you know, if you want, you can actually get on a plane and go visit the property as well. So mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it, it's really all available to us if we're willing to do the work. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean, um, I always tell people too, the question that, you know, it's hard to, to tell people uh, or at least give them, a, you can't really give them advice on what sort of allocation they should put into a deal, right? So if they have mm-hmm. a $2 million net worth and they've got, you know, 400,000 they want to have allocated, typically I'd say, you don't put it in one deal, right? You put it in three or four different mm-hmm. deals. So you have some diversification because some deals do perform better than others. I mean, you know, the worst, the lower end that we've seen, at least for our deals, the 13 deals have been involved with, it's like, you know, eight to 12% is kind of the low end. And then we've seen some that are 30 plus percent per year. So, yeah. you know, it's usually within a range, which is, which is nice. And again, um, every deal is different, mm-hmm. but I think just being able to, you know, look at the deal, look at the operator, um, and then just really kind of, you know, I think for people that have not invested, sometimes it's just, it's just taking the plunge and investing the minimum with somebody because you're going to yeah. learn a ton while you do that. Just getting started exactly. is better than just sitting on the sidelines forever. Yeah. It's a great way. Uh, if you passively invest and someone that's, you feel is going to be open with you, uh, as much as you want them to be open with it. Cause like you said, I mean, there's some past investors that go to properties that we do and will meet us there. There's some that never go and just respond back to the email and say, I want to invest or whatever it is. And that want to come out later and stuff. So everybody has their own kind of um, not sweet spot, but like comfort, comfort zone, right. Of how they want to invest. And if they've met you once or they've spoken to you once and they're just looking for a deal and who knows uh, people liquidating asset, you didn't know. And two weeks later, now they want to invest. So it's uh, it really, really changes. But um, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Yeah. So I really appreciate you having me on today. Uh, Charles has been great. And yeah, I'd love to connect with any listeners, whether it's active or passive. I have this report that I wrote that's uh, it's like 24 color pages, the single best investing strategy during and after a pandemic. So you can go to my website, nice. which is bronsonequity.com. And then you'll just see it there. You can, you can download it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do monthly events. We do, we talk about precious metals. We talk about inflation. We talk about real estate. We talk basically about wealth 
building and wealth preservation. And so I try to really not just look at real estate, but look at the whole, uh, you know, the whole sphere of being wealthy, continuing to keep your wealth, grow your wealth and protect it from different harmful things. So yeah, I look forward to connecting with anybody. Nice. All different alternative assets. So I will put links to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Thanks so much, Charles. Me too. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.